Welcome to the latest episode of Alter Ego. Uh, today, we're asking whether the culture wars that we're witnessing presents an opportunity for personal and collective growth. Uh, is there any resolution to the madness that we see online? Uh, and to do this, I will be talking to Peter Lindbergh, who is one of the two authors of a very, very brilliant article called Mimetic Tribes and Culture Wars 2.0, which uh, takes about an hour to read on Medium, uh, but it's really worth it. It basically uh, presents one of the most impressive analysis of uh, what's actually happening in the culture wars. And it goes through everything from uh, the crises that are actually shaping it underneath, but also the 34 and counting active tribes in the, in the culture wars. The most <laughs> impressive aspect of the of the article is an Excel sheet that does a taxonomy um, of every single tribe from the alt rice to the alt light to social justice warriors to gender critical feminists to the intellectual dark web uh, to names that you probably have never heard of um, and goes through their sacred values and their trigger points and their virtues and what it means uh, to have high status in each group. So it's a really, really impressive article. So if you take anything from this podcast, it is to check out the article. Um, because I think that um, we're in such a confusing space, um, an overwhelming space, that we really need new maps to make sense of them. And I feel what Peter and Connor have offered us this space is some really good maps uh, that we can uh, develop. So in this episode, I'll be basically uh, talking with Peter about some of the core ideas in the article, and we'll kind of use that as um, a departure point for a general conversation about um, this uh, era of uh, multipolar tribalism that we're in and whether there's, um, uh, I suppose, progressive pathways out of that. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Peter. It's good to be here. Thanks, to Thanks be for here. having me. So um, at the beginning, you say that politics has always been on some level characterized by a culture war, but it's been much more monolithic. And that is between the red tribe and the blue tribe. So I'm wondering if you could just maybe explain to listeners what the red tribe and the blue tribe are, and then and then what we are have evolved, what we are evolving into in terms of this multi-tribal space. Sure. So I guess we'll we'll start with um, a definition of what a, what a culture war is, uh, or what we define it as, and we define it as a, a mimetic war that determines the social facts at the core of a given society, kind of determines the boundaries between what is sacred and what is profane. Um, and we made a distinction between what we call a culture war 1.0 and culture war 2.0. And culture war 1.0 was uh, what you would think was happening in the 1990s with uh, the Christian right versus sort of the secular left. And the, the hot topics at debate there were abortion, uh, gay marriage, uh, teaching evolution in school. And essentially, we make the argument in the paper is the culture war 1.0 is over. And now we're entering a new phase where it's not just a left and right, what we call bipolar war, but it's a, it's a, a multipolar war with a multitude of different tribes fighting each other, trying to control the narrative of, of society. So do you want to just give people um, a kind of an overview of the tribes in the space? I don't expect you to talk about all 34, but maybe just to give people a kind of a grounding 
by talking about some of the dominant tribes and uh, some of their core beliefs and and what animates them. Yeah. So we used a term, um, it might have been existing previously, but we coined uh, mimetic tribes. So essentially, it's it's a chance for somebody to be tribal around a meme plex or a set of memes. And the idea is that they're directly or indirectly seeking to impose their distinct map of reality um, along with their moral imperatives upon others' minds. So the way I look at it, it's sort of a map of reality uh, that tells you what is and what ought to be. And um, it's like a compression algorithm that, that engenders a certain reality tunnel that they want other minds to um, adopt. And so some of the, the players... Can I just, can I just, before you talk about the players, you, you yeah. said uh, a compression algorithm that supports a certain reality tunnel. That's a mm -hmm. lot of complex words that are flying <laughs> over my head. Uh, but they're fascinating. Could you maybe explain what the hell a compression algorithm is and what is a reality tunnel is? Yes. Um, so the idea is that reality is really com uh, complex and we can't take it all in. So we have to uh, compress that data into something that is manageable something that gives us uh, an explanation of what reality is and uh, what we should be doing in this reality. So it's like the map of the territory and the directions of how to use that map. Um, and then the reality tunnel, I think it's uh, that term was coined by Timothy Leary. And it's just essentially how that, uh, that map manifests um, in your life and, in, and how it kind of helps you navigate things. Thank you. Uh, on to the tribes. Yes. So we listed, I think, uh, 34, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot more. Um, and each tribe, we broke it down into, uh, there's like an anatomy of each medic tribe. And so they have sacred values, values that uh, are non-negotiable, uh, that can't be uh, transgressed. And if they are transgressed, then it will trigger uh, a tribal member. Um, and these are also sort of the, the virtues that they signal. So when you hear virtue signaling, it's not just for people that are on the social justice side, but I would say everyone virtue signals uh, their, their values and statuses. And then we say that um, each tribe has a master status, something that is they identify with as a whole. Uh, they have existential threats, things that uh, they feel are a threat to their survival or the survival of humanity. They have people that they fight against. They have chieftains that they look up to and influence their, their memes. Uh, and they have mental models to help them understand the world. Uh, and then I can go into some of the, the examples that we had on the, the spreadsheet, if you like. Yeah, I think that would be amazing to, you know, take maybe take some of the ones that people listening might be most familiar with and actually to go through, you know, their sacred values, their master status. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Cool. So I guess the first one that's on the spreadsheet is the social justice activists. And some people refer to them as social justice warriors. But one thing that we wanted to do in this paper is refer to or use the terminology that the people who adhere to the tribe use themselves. So I don't think um, most people who are into social justice would use a social justice warrior uh, unless it's in an ironic sense. So we use the social justice activists 
And adjacent to them, uh, I would say, is Black Life Matters, uh, the Me Too. And then there's other leftist tribes like gender critical feminists and, and modern uh, neo-Marxists. And I think at least for the social justice activists, the Black Life Matters and the Me Too, you can say those are, or I like to refer to them as the woke left. And if you scroll down the spreadsheet or what we listed on the spreadsheet, there's a constellation of tribes that you would say are on the right that you that I like to call the red pill right. And these are the, the manosphere, the neo-reactionaries, uh, incels, alt-right, alt-left. Um, and I would say the this woke left and the red pill right are sort of the those constellation of tribes are sort of the ones that are moving this current culture war. Mm. And then you got these observer tribes like the rationalists and integral theorists and these sort of uh, emerging centrist tribes, or at least they refer to themselves as centrist tribes like the intellectual dark web or the sorters, which is essentially Peterson and his, uh, and his fan base. So um, taking, just to take one in particular, social justice activists, because I think I imagine like a lot of our uh, listeners would see themselves as uh, progressive and would be quite involved in activism. So just to actually go through uh, what their, uh, your taxonomy. And so what I found interesting was obviously their telos, their, their ultimate goal is to end social oppression. Uh, which I suppose maybe it's I'm revealing my bias, but it's difficult to argue against that. Um, mm. It's master status, which I think is really interesting that within each, all of these groups, there is a hierarchy. Um, so in Black Lives Matter, the master status is a African-American. And actually it reminds me um, of a article uh, in the New York Times that talked about how you know the woke left and the alt-right have inverse hierarchies where in yeah, social justice yeah. circles... Uh, white men are at the bottom of the hierarchy, um, uh, you know, and are often told to kind of shut up and, you know, stop taking up too much space and, uh, and, and, and give space for others and to be um, maybe a, a, a member of, uh, of certain ethnic groups that are experiencing widespread oppression within that tribe is seen as the kind of the master status. They, they are, um, and, but then inversely in, on the woke right, or the uh, the red pill right. Obviously, the master status is uh, a white man. So it's interesting that they inverse. Um, but um, it, within this social justice activist, ex the existential threat, uh, it's it's written here in the uh, in the expel sheet as kierarchy. I presume mm -hmm. is that what what I is kierarchy? That's how you pronounce it. Um, so I, I, it's a set of connecting social systems that's that's built around you know domination and submission. It's like a, systematic discrimination essentially it's built into our society mm. uh, and then uh competence of social justice activists are the alt-light the alt-right the sorters uh which is kind of uh jordan peterson's group and trumpus mm -hmm. um and then what i what i found interesting is that they have um uh a number of chieftains i recognize laurie penny the the british writer as one Brianna Wu, Arthur Chu, obviously you can't name them all, but again, they have kind of leading figures that uh, represent them, articulate their beliefs, uh, and that they have mental models. So intersectionality and critical theory would be a mental model by which they understand the world. Um, 
uh, and they obviously have forebears, people like Judith Buffler, who have given rise to them. And what's interesting is that if you're in one of these tribes, uh, like I would probably consider myself a social justice activist, along with being a part of the integral theorist tribe, that mm. uh, when you're inside it, you know, you believe, well, this is the world and this is the truth. And if only everyone got around to our way of thinking, then the world would be a better place. And there is a degree of truth to that. But what's interesting is that when you see all 34 tribes listed with this taxonomy, you uh, it, it brings you into a meta perspective. It kind yes. of helps you graduate beyond, even if, even if for just a curious moment, beyond your particular tribe and the lens through which you see the world into the ways in which so many other and competing tribes see the world. Um, and it's a, I think it's a very interesting intellectual shift um, uh, that you know, the article speaks to. And my and, hope with, um, with that is that it, it, it acts as sort of like a psychoactive uh, drug. You know, it, it would jog you out of your, your reality tunnel and say, hey, wait a minute, um, how much closure do I have, you know, uh, right now and how I'm operating? And am I speaking with other people with maximum charity or am I just sort of looking at them through this funhouse mirror of my own mental models and worldview? Mm-hmm. And I know, I know, like writing this, this paper, it was sort of like... Um, uh, not the easiest process because it's like engendered like mini existential crises all the time. Cause yeah. I was actually engaging in these, these perspectives as sort of like a method actor would engage in a character. Um, Cause I really wanted to understand them on their own terms and not on sort of my biases and uh, the reality tunnels that I was operating on in the past. We, we had the, uh, um, had the idea having read this, that it would be incredible to create a like what I was calling a meta modern art exhibition, where you actually displayed all of the tribes in one space. Um, oh. Similar to if you're looking at a painting, you would see a canvas of one of the forebears. You would uh, have a laptop and headphones, where you would look at the top ten videos on YouTube to radicalize you into that perspective. Oh man, uh, yeah, and and almost That's awesome. uh, yeah, and almost the physical space, the three D space is itself a metamodern space where you can have some kind of detached uh, observation of all tribes. And, to, and and I suppose to get to you know what integral theorists describe as second-tier consciousness, where you uh, can, on some level, transcend the particular worldview that you have inherited or that you have subscribed to and understand that... Um, people uh that that there is your worldview and it operates in an ecosystem of many other worldviews and mm-hmm. that you don't have to abandon that worldview uh, but you do have to hold the much more existentially challenging space of the harmonization and, and negotiation of those worldviews and i think that the problem we have at the moment is that each tribe believes that their tribe is absolutely correct, that their mental models literally describe the world, that um, the things that they are threatened by are the biggest threats of our time, uh, and that on, on, on many respects that the uh, people who belong to other tribes are either stupid or evil. Um, and that just makes for a very unproductive political conversation because it's unrealistic to think that any tribe has the financial and cultural and political and military capital to win out and produce some kind of 
hegemony um, uh, or some kind of, uh, like in a way, all of those tribes are totalitarian in nature. They, they want their worldview to be the worldview. Uh, and this shift to second tier uh, seems to be uh, a kind of a, a resignation of, of that ideological dream and instead an invitation into a, a more mature and sobering perspective, which is that actually we need to find a way of realizing the healthy expression uh, of of many of these tribes. And, and now it gets into tricky territory when some of these tribes, you know, ISIS is a tribe. And what is there a healthy expression of ISIS? Or is it like actually it has, you know, no place in liberal democracy and it needs to be wiped out by military means. So there is obviously a, there's this kind of sense of a hard line. But with many of them, you know, like I, I the more I am in this space, the more I can really have empathy for um, the kind of, you know, values uh, or at least emotional fears and concerns that are present, you know, on on the right. Um, do do do. This is something that I I naturally um, uh, support or, or um, no, but I it's it, it does bring about this kind of empathy that that serves as this glue that holds democracy together. Yes, yes, and uh, going back to that um, that art gallery idea, I think that's brilliant, and. Onto your point, on some of these tribes, they have a sort of like a closure principle and it's really hard to communicate with them because they are viewing you in their certain reality tunnel. And and then the art gallery, for example, is a way to sort of jog them out of it. It's like a, a, Trojan, a Trojan horse way to show them a different perspective. And I think that project is is very important to do not only it builds compassion in somebody else's worldview and maybe understand uh, their needs behind um, that worldview. Cause uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, I'm not an expert at this area by any means, but there's uh, probably a correlation or causation with some of the psychological issues that people face. And then the, uh, the ideas that they get attracted to. Can you say more and, about that? Well, the, the obvious example I would say is uh, the incels. Of, of the memetic tribe. Uh, these are mostly men who feel like they are not successful in the sexual marketplace. Uh, they're not, they're not good with women. Um, and maybe that, that is a reality. Maybe they're not attractive to women. Uh, but the response that the, or the ideas that you're attracted to sort of support that belief that they have that reality that they're experiencing. And, uh, pathologize it in a way or, or just look at it from a limited point of view or in perspective hmm. there's uh in, in a way it's uh i think one of the most helpful shifts is is empathizing with the emotional need uh behind the radical idea and understanding how you can cater for that on a more complex level you know so the mm -hmm. the, the classic one you know being clearly people who are um, drawn to, you know, Trump's policies on hard borders and really extreme immigration are on some level facing, uh, uh, you know, have emotional needs around security, around safety. Um, mm -hmm. And the question is, in many respects, one of the ironies is that they're often felt in areas that have the least amount of immigration. You know, similarly in Eastern Europe, there's very, very strong support for governments that are quite anti-immigration, even though they often have the least levels of immigration in the European Union. Um, and uh, But rather than dismissing them as, I suppose, 
racist or uh, fascist. It's trying to understand, you know, the experience of of living, like you said in the article, in an unsettling world, uh, in an insecure economy where you've become a stranger in your own land or feel very alienated and trying to, I suppose, promote a, a type of politics that really puts empathy and compassion uh, to the core and really and really does that hard work of really seeing beyond our tribal worldview to the ways other people uh, see things. Mm-hmm. What came to mind when you're saying that is uh, something that uh, we're working on here in, in Toronto at the Intellectual Explorers Club, which is the group that uh, created this white paper, and it's called the Anti-Debate. And the idea is you let's say two people that are opposing mimetic tribes or opposing views uh person a gives their position or proposition on a certain issue and then person b has to repeat that in their own words to the point where the first person feels fully understood Mm, right and then once they say yes i feel fully understood then they give their disagreement or their response and then the the person who's listening to the disagreement has to repeat the disagreement back until the that person feels fully understood and then the process repeats. So instead of just like misinterpretation, disagreement, it's understanding and then uh, disagreement, understanding di- uh, disagreement. And I think when when prototyping this year in Toronto, it has a really interesting effect. And the thought that came to mind when you're when you're talking is because the person felt feels understood. Yeah. You know, like some of the needs are feeling like they're being net met behind the the ideas. And and this is the thing is that uh, it, it you know it's classic human psychology. It's that we all have a need to feel seen and heard. You know, like the yes. it, you know, it's, it's, it, the the metaphor is of you know a warring couple in conflict. And it's like yeah, you can you know you can argue till you're blue in the face, but until one capitulates and they really show a willingness to understand and to see and to hear the other person and to repeat that back to them, that that's what creates the space for concession and for understanding and for some kind of productive resolution to the conversation. Whereas what we have at the moment is just extreme dysfunctionality of, you know, it's not just it's not just willful misrepresentation, it's shaming, it's doxing, uh, it's mm-hmm. war, you know, and there's so much hurt and bitterness on all sides. Uh, and and the online space is so poor at facilitating like at best nuance and at worst like real deep emotional resolution to conflict uh, that it's very difficult to understand what a resolution to this space might look like and i'm interested in in asking you whether you believe that this is a problem that can be solved or is this just what to expect when you have social media and you have uh, tribes in the space is there any is there any discernible resolution to this Hmm. That's a good question. There's moments when um, I get pessimistic about it and and think, no, we have to go through this war and things are going to have to get ugly and things, the mimetic war might turn kinetic before uh, people say, hey, let's, let's, let's go to the negotiating table or mm. for the perspective negotiating table. So that's in my more uh, darker moments, but in my more optimistic moments, usually I'm a, I'm a person that's filled with uh, existential hope, you know, like even though I don't have a, a rational path towards a hopeful solution, I just feel um, this hope. Mm. 
And in those moments, uh, I just want to work towards activities, uh, personal or collective, that at least ameliorates this this tension in my own life and in my local community. Um, so it's not really answering your question because the, the, the question is, I don't know. That's, that's a truthful answer. But that's my response to uh, the tension I feel within when I hear that uh, question. And I think that's really beautiful that uh, it does come from a, a kind of a an irrational hope or an existential hope that is deeply felt and yet, you know, can't be accounted for in the circumstances of today. Um, but equally that the the desire to to create alternatives or to to model solutions uh, is in a way uh, begins with resolving your own tension of what you're not seeing mm-hmm. in the world and for that to take root at a local community level. And I think, you know, on in the kind of the long, like uh, there's an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal last week that uh, the, the title of which was Politics Can Solve Political Problems and that really the deep-rooted cultural nature of the crisis that we're facing, the fracturing of communities, the alienation, the loneliness, the atomization, um, uh, on some level that there needs to be some deep resolution at the individual and the community level. And for that in itself to become a new politics, that can, that, that, that probably is the form in which uh, communities can come together and really understand each other. So it's interesting to see the emergence of these new prototypes, these new conversation spaces. Quillette talked about mm-hmm. uh, the emergence of little platoons, of workshop spaces where Democrats and conservatives would come together, probably in somewhat of a similar process to what you're describing in Toronto, of really seeing each other and healing each other, using techniques like nonviolent communication to uh, feel seen and heard. Um, uh, I suppose the thing that makes me uh, quite deflated is that it's just so difficult to understand how that scales, how that can even appear in the online space, because the forces in the online space are so strong. And I probably, my intuition is that it probably will take a moment where things go too far. Um, You know, uh, like there was a moment uh, just coming up to the Brexit referendum when the young MP Joe Cox was killed. And that was a moment of like, holy shit, like, what are we doing? You know, Um, and, uh, and, you know, it still wasn't strong enough to, kind of stem the division and the hatred but you know history is kind of like the pattern in history is of us going in a wrong direction and having to go far enough and wrong enough that we kind of have a moment of collective realization that puts us on uh, a more optimal path at least for a particular period of time and i wouldn't be surprised if um that it's that that it, it just gets to a point where people say no more and we came close to it in the i think in the in the Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination where there was just a real sense of just absolute bitter division uh, over his nomination and you know seven out of eight republicans uh, believed Kavanaugh and seven out of eight uh, Democrats believed Ford and it was just like okay what is going on like with the nature of belief and political values and its connection to facts that this is happening Um, so I find it really interesting that there is the rise of this deeper diagnosis that's quite psychological in nature as to you know the architecture of belief why people believe certain things um, and uh, and really almost bringing that into the conversation so that it can be more productive. Mm-hmm. And uh, how are you doing that personally in London? 
Um, well, for the last couple of years with Alter Ego, we've been organizing gatherings uh, away in the countryside for the weekend with, broadly speaking, leaders in kind of progressive social change, progressive politics. And, uh, you know, we, we're calling for like a deeper, more complex politics, politics that can really acknowledge the psychological and emotional and spiritual dimensions to, to life and to politics, but also one that can honor greater complexity and to understand that there are worldviews beyond your own. And so we, you know, a lot of our work is in creating spaces for, you could call them developmental spaces, um, for people to do personal growth work, to have more complex and deeper conversations. Um, and, you know, with the goal of, uh, I suppose, helping with this shift towards a second tier mindset, if we're going to use the kind of the integral framework. Um, mm -hmm. So that's what, that's what we're currently doing. And I think that what I found really interesting was um, that at the end of your article, you had a list of kind of speculative proposals um, <laughs> for ways in which we can use the culture war as an opportunity for personal and collective growth. Um, and I think that a lot of them have inspired us to like experiment with new formats. So I'm wondering whether you could share um, some of the ones that you, um, that you developed or that, um, that you spoke about um, and because I think it'd be quite fascinating for people listening to potentially take on and prototype themselves. Yeah, yeah. So at the end, uh, we wanted to end on a, sort of a existential hopeful note. So we we did some speculative proposals, and really they're just sort of free associative spitball ideas that that plant seeds, and uh, entrepreneurial spirits can take them and run with them, or, or be inspired by them. So I'll go through a, a few. Uh, the first one was the Hippocratic Oath of the Culture War. So the Hippocratic Oath is what, you know, usually people who graduate medicine school, medical school, they, they take. Um, even though it has no kind of formal authority now, it sort of acts as a sort of like a ritualistic magic that you're committing to uh, certain ideals. And we suggest that people who are meme creators or influencers on the internet, whether they're, they're bloggers or journalists or anchors, mm -hmm. that they take some kind of oath or some oath gets developed that emphasizes uh, the principle of charity, uh, intellectual humility, uh, good faith dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so when they break that oath, then people can point uh, to the fact that they're being hypocritical. Mm. And we didn't actually formulate what that oath could look like, but it's something that, you know, maybe people uh, could create. And and if you say it or you speak it, then you can put that badge on your your profile, mm. on your on your blog or, or whatever. Mm. Yeah. And the other one we have. Well, just to say, yeah. I just think it's it's such a simple, you know, it itself, it is a mimetic idea and it's just ripe for, prototyping and developing just to just to do you know a version even you know and i think that uh yeah if anyone who is listening is interested in taking that on maybe to talk to us and uh and just see how yeah. that could be developed because it's just very simple but very profound and and the, the trick would be is to find some principles or virtues 
that most tribes would agree on. Mm. Um, like being truthful, for example. Uh, and it's finding that shared logical space where where they can find some co- commonality. And that would be the, the trick about it. And, and it has to be worded in such a way where it, it doesn't uh, bias towards one tribe or the other. Mm. So that's why if you can have good faith actors, which I believe there's good faith actors in every tribe. Mm. Um, if you have good faith actors coming together and discussing it, maybe something can get created from that. Yeah. And I think that's something that is sponsored by those good faith actors um, is, is probably the most likely to succeed, you know, in a way it's almost like yes. own, you talked about the Geneva convention for the culture wars, you know, that like it, it does, these times do evoke the need for some kind of summit of the leaders of different tribes to really, uh, come together and, and negotiate some terms upon which, uh, the, the, the they will be in some kind of conflict process. Cause at the moment with this free for all, it's really difficult to say whether it's having any positive effect, you know, in terms of any particular t- tribe gaining ground, uh, apart from the corrosive effects it's having on the conversational space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So the I'll, I'll move on with um, the other uh, the other proposals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the second one is uh, dirty bias to clean bias, and so these are terms that um, we coined. Uh, and dirty bias is when you're presenting yourself a certain way, and you're not revealing your biases or your uh, your foundational propositions, your presuppositions on the world. Mm. Uh, and then you have this sort of a performative neutrality, mm-hmm. right? And which, which, which a lot of people find annoying if you're, you're acting like a, a neutral party, but you're secretly biased. Mm. So in order to, uh, in order to counteract that, uh, we recommend having a clean bias. So, reveal uh, your philosophy of life, reveal what mimetic tribe resonates with you the most. And so for myself, uh, right now, intellectually, I'm most attracted to the post-rationalists and the integral theorists. Um, but I, I, I agree with Ken Wilber when he says, um, nobody's smart enough to be 100% wrong, right? So there, there's, I can see truth in um, the perspectives of each tribe. Mm. And so the idea is, you know, maybe in addition to the Hippocratic Oath is that you, in your bio, instead of showing off your status of, uh, you know, your social status of all the accomplishments you do, show off your your bias, show off uh, your philosophy of life. Mm. And so uh, somebody reads an article uh, and they see a position, then they can, can check your bio and say, ah, you know, this is where they're coming from. This is their perspective. Yeah. And it also, I, I've used perspectives um, as speaking a language. Right. And so the more you find out where people's perspectives are from and then what kind of ideas they're putting out, the better you become at speaking that language. Yeah. And it, it really speaks to me that, that, that I'm what, like, there's, there's almost clean bias 1.0, which is just declaring your general political stance and leaning and the tribes you belong to. But then there's a kind of a deeper expression of bias, which is, you know, like what your um, kind of, psychological makeup is who who are your social groups and what what does that lead mm-hmm. you to do and i like i'll give you a live example during the summer um i made a, a video 
comparing and contrasting Russell Brand and Jordan Peterson. And it was an attempt to make sense of Peterson's thinking by putting him against uh, an interlocutor who is from more of a kind of a left-wing background, but was nonetheless willing to engage him in dialogue. Um, and the piece at the end comes down quite critical of Peterson saying that he puts too much emphasis on the individual, not enough on collective responsibility, and uh, and and is quite judgmental at the end. And I got, um, you know, it was, it was received fairly positively as one of the few constructive critiques of Peterson that was bringing a more left wing perspective, but um, it didn't fully maybe achieve the kind of the meta modern or integral neutrality of can you just represent both of these people's views not for not form your own opinion and allow other people to make up their own mind and actually when i really felt into why i didn't do that it was because i felt a a, a social pressure uh, to be critical of peterson um because of hmm. my social group in london which are uh you know like in a kind of activist queer space and uh and you know many of them despise peterson and the idea of even doing anything on him is uh is um almost a betrayal of the cause and these are the kind of yeah. these are the, the actual uh you know when they say making the personal political like one way of looking at it is these are the very personal things that actually go on to inform what we choose to say online what we don't choose to say. Um, and, and that requires a huge amount of vulnerability because the pressure to virtue signal to your tribe is so mm -hmm. enormous, you know, because it really is, it, it does, it, it, you, it is very much felt um, in terms of, you know, are you going to get invited to any parties anymore? Are you going to be shunned by your social group if you, if you really believe in something, but it goes against your tribe? And it, uh, I think it requires an, like a lot of courage to you know in the spirit of genuine truthful inquiry to be able to say what you believe in a public space uh, and and to risk um i suppose being uh critiqued or rejected by your tribe um so i think and i would add to that um like for myself i, I don't even though i resonate with the, the post-rationalists and the integral theorists i don't feel like i i i'm an avatar of any tribe and maybe I'm sort of on the developing an agnostic or model agnostic tribe here in, in Toronto. But the, I'll, I'll speak upon uh, my fear of even writing this article. Um, because if I say if I, I messed up and I didn't uh, represent a certain tribe a certain way, uh, and it triggered one of their sacred values, the, it could lead to reputational damage. You know, like beyond um, losing your kind of tribal contacts, even if you don't belong to that tribe, you can get attacked publicly, be called a racist, be called this, be called mm. that. Or like uh, you could be trolled, right? You could be harassed privately. Mm. So by putting yourself out there and, and even talking about this stuff, you're risking, right? Your, your reputation and you're risking um, kind of your psychological health. Mm. Uh, so there's there's... I think we did a pretty good job with the article in the sense that most people from the left and the right seem to resonate with it. Um, but it was a careful game to play. And if uh, the fear on my part is if, uh, you know, it's like, it's like landmines, you're walking in this, mm. um, this field and just one wrong move, you, you could blow up. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this speaks to, before we go on to some of the other proposals that you have, a, a curious, I think, inflection point for the particularly for the integral tribe, because you describe some tribes 
uh, as uh, observer tribes rather than active tribes. And your article is very much an observer an observer stance. It's like we're you know we're not speaking from a perspective. We're profiling all perspectives and uh, integral theorists and people who are who are interested in those ideas. Um, very much are occupying that position at the moment. And I would say with Alter Ego, we've been doing that as well. We've been generally just creating conversational spaces. We have put out some media. Um, but um, there is a question about like, well, when are, when are all of these people who have a very complex uh, informed view of society and a real, you could say, spiritual vision for the world and a lot of ideas for change, when are they actually going to put some skin in the game? When are they going to get involved? And what does it mean to get involved? Um, and I think that um, there is a, there is a, I suppose, an intellectual confusion um, around like, okay, so I've, you know, I'm really striving for this second tier perspective where I'm integrating other worldviews and I can really, you know, see the, the validity at a baseline level of some, you know, more conservative values and the necessity for them in society and progressive values and, and their necessity. And I, I seek to integrate them. But, you know, ultimately, what does that mean in, in the day-to-day -day politics where you kind of are often forced to take sides and you will be boxed in or put into a tribe regardless? Um, and it's a very... Uh, I suppose, confusing space to be in. And then when you put that added layer of just being harassed and trolled and taken out, that it's yeah, easier yeah. to stay in your, you know, intellectual ivory tower safe space and, uh, and you know, just to kind of provide general commentary. Um, so I think that that's uh, maybe a, quite a big unspoken thing uh, within the integral tribe is what is the degree of willingness to actually get political and you know can we at least start with acknowledging our fear of doing that and you know what came to mind as well in addition to the the potential fear um is the the integral theorists that i know here in toronto i know them mostly through uh, the authentic relating movement and, and the we spaces that uh, i sometimes attend and their just interests are elsewhere you know their interests are kind of like um in, in, in waking up and cleaning up and growing up. And uh, they don't really seem to get uh, inspired by outrage porn, mm -hmm. like the, some of the woke left or red pill right tribes. So their, their focus seems elsewhere uh, to me. Um, and then added to the reputational, potential reputational damage or the, or the trolling that could occur. Um, maybe they just don't see the incentive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing that it speaks to is, um, I don't know if you're aware of um, More in Common. More in Common is a uh, initiative that was set up in the wake of Joe Cox's murder um, by her husband, Brendan Cox, and um, Tim Dixon, who is a progressive strategist. But they basically created a, an organization to help uh, heal polarization in society. And they do lots of different things, but one of the things they launched last week was a report called The Hidden Tribes, and it was basically profiling the, I don't know if you saw that, did you see that? Um, the different yes. tribes in uh, America. And what was interesting, it's always interesting to see multiple map, map makers do their thing, because then you, you have a better a better understanding uh, of what maps are, are, are most representative of reality. But they would say that uh, in, in their uh, understanding, there's eight groups 
um, which I'll just describe very briefly. Progressive activists, uh, which are, you know, you might describe as the woke left, traditional liberals, um, passive liberals. There's a big swath that are just politically disengaged. There are moderates, there are traditional conservatives, and there are devoted conservatives who might be more the the, the kind of red pill right or the, uh, the woke right. Um, and... Uh, what I found interesting was uh, that they were saying that um, that the wings, uh, the progressive activists and the devoted conservatives, they make up 8% and 6% of the sample. And yet because they are most active on social media, they are shaping the debate. And actually what we think of as a kind of a everyone's involved in one tribe. Actually, a lot of the tribes are skewed to the extremes of the left and the right. And that there's a whole swath of people from their research, passive liberals, people who are disengaged, moderates, that are, uh, they call them the exhausted majority. And that they're actually really sick and tired mm. of this polarization that is, you know, kind of flirts between being dangerous and pointless. Um, and uh, and are and and believe in the context of America that they that they have more in common than what and divides them, and then what what's not happening in politics is, I suppose, uh, a, rep a representation of those tribes uh, in in the conversational space, uh, and one of the reasons being that uh, we have um, a business model in social media that favors outrage porn and favors anger and that that is what delivers more clicks and so there's a real systemic um kind of flaw in the democratic media system with social media at the moment um so i thought that was a just a important perspective to introduce um was that the wings often dominate um on the conversation when there is this kind of vast uh middle ground where a compromise could be reached Yes, yes. It's like rule by minority, minority uh, outrage. Minority outrage. And, and I also wanted to ask you about the degree to which, uh, so this article was discussed on a, a metamodern forum. And one of the perspectives that was brought was the degree to which the people who are really driving this uh, mimetic tribal politics, the degree to which they're traumatized uh, and the degree to which they, on a, on a kind of a embodied emotional level, are just more deeply, deeply triggered and deeply attached to their sacred values, and they have a greater degree of perceived threat. And I just, um, uh, yeah, and uh, I, I wonder whether you have any thoughts on on that as a kind of a, a hypothesis. So, um, the hypothesis is that there's certain mimetic tribes that their sacred values are so attached to their identity that if you transgress that, then their well-being is um, endangered. It's a and these are the tribes that are potentially uh, motivating the, the culture war or pushing yes, it forward? Yes, uh, yes, that and that they are, that actually their degree of attraction to uh, a tribe that is very much in, willingly in a hostile space that is kind of taking part every day, that there is uh that uh is there a correlation between uh the trauma that people carry and their attraction to these groups that are in uh a huge conflict dynamic um which i just thought was I've, i find very interesting particularly in relation to levels of perceived threat and the degree to which uh you know triggering uh can happen on both sides yeah yeah 
Um, I would tend to agree with that. Um, I haven't thought too much about uh, the reality behind it, but it makes perfect sense to me that if um, someone's reality is is threatened or they're, they don't feel safe physically or emotionally or psychologically, they're going to get uh, attracted to um, an ideas that will uh, serve sort of as a band-aid in a way and, and helps them deal with that reality that they're facing. But it's always, you know, it might not always be the best ideas, but they might give an immediate benefit towards the the real pain mm. that they're feeling. Mm. Yeah, I just think it's an interesting one to 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 look at. I wanted to just um I know I've I've like sidetracked you a number of times while you're talking about speculative proposals, but I was wondering if you could talk us through uh I think it's it was my favorite idea in the piece, which is this idea of gray pilling. Um yeah, as a uh, as a kind of a, a the, almost the meta shift that uh, is required. Um, yeah, I'd love if you could speak about that. So after we wrote all these proposals, uh, me and my co-author Connor, we said, "What's the theme that's running through all of them?" And really, it's in injecting uh, uncertainty, right? It's being comfortable with being uncertain and making uncertainty sexy, you know, and. Uh, this idea of the gray pill, which I got from Venkatesh Rao, who's the the editor of Ribbon Farm, uh, the post-rationalist blog. And they use the kind of the blue pill, red pill terminology, not in a way that the, the red pill right co-opted it, but in the way that the matrix originally presented it. And the idea is that the blue pill is sort of uh, consensus reality, your unexamined life that uh, you were born into. And Venkatesh said that there is no blue pill because you don't take it, you're born into it. And then we all have our, our red pill moments where we realize the, the structural lies behind our previous reality. And I would say being woke is, is uh, a leftist version of being red pilled um, in a way because it, it, it showed the illusions behind their previous blue pill reality. And every one of these mimetic tribes, they're red-pilled in their own way, if you want to look at it as that uh, in that in that broad terms. And But the red pill, what it does to you, it gives you um, certainty, right? It gives you confidence. It gives you an enemy. It gives you something to strive for. It tribalizes you, which, you know, has its benefits. But if you're too certain, it uh, can be pathological. So the idea is uh, the gray pill and the gray pill is it questions your, uh, your former certainties. It muddies the water a little bit. It allows you to be comfortable with nuance. And this is just sort of a, a modern way of saying being philosoph uh, philosophical because I, I read an article recently uh, in, a, in a philosophy uh, blog and they were saying that a lot of people, when they take first year philosophy, they get disappointed because, you know, they're looking for some kind of answer for life and then they get nothing. And that's the wrong frame, uh, the author argued, because uh, philosophy is not about coming towards some objective or some goal. It's about being comfortable with uh, complexity, about looking at the world in a complex way and actually enjoying that 
rather than trying to um, force some kind of mm. conclusion. And so that's the idea of, of, of being gray-pilled. And what in that passage, we said uh, gray-pills as acid tests. So I remember I watched this documentary on Ken, on Ken Kesey. He was the one of the guys that drove the hippie movement in his merry band of pranksters. They, they drove this bus and they went to around America and I think LSD was legal at the time. And so they gave LSD tests, acid tests to people. And their argument was that by doing this, it would open their mind. And, uh, you know, I'm agnostic if that was helpful or harmful, but uh, I, I love the spirit of the idea. And so the proposal was maybe there's a way that we can return to the, the spirit of Socrates and go around and question people in um, a very friendly and uh, fun way that does not support their certainties, but tries to get them to be more comfortable with uncertainty. Mm. So that's sort of the the, the essence of that uh, proposal. Um, what I like is that when you go from, I really identify both with being red-pilled, particularly into the social justice activist world, where you kind of uh, see the, when you learn about, you know, the 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 conspiracy theory of neoliberalism and how that was constructed you know from the Montpellerin society over the decades in the 70s of Thatcher and Reagan and you're like wow what we consider to be economics is actually a particular you know movement by Hayek and co to really dominate with ideas and you're like what the fuck and then similarly being exposed to mm-hmm. you know the communitarian movement and you know Schumacher's ideas around small is beautiful living in community discovering spirituality and again saying wow this is the answer and then slowly graduating out of that and you know just seeing uh you know obviously it's true for me but for many people it potentially isn't true and also the just the realities of how that would work at a kind of a large scale level and what i find is this recurring pattern of the kind of the revelation of the red pill and then the deflation of seeing the limits of that particular worldview and in particular the shadow of the worldview and i think that you know what's interesting is that peterson mm. really has been a mirror to the shadow of the left and the kind of the shadow of identity politics culture that uh you know is both causing a real kind of defensiveness uh, often because they genuinely don't feel understood uh, but equally people who are graduating beyond uh, the kind of the identitarian left and 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 kind of embracing, uh, you know, just a more complex view and are, you know, discovering the intellectual dark web and are wondering whether are they a traitor to the cause. And it's just a very confusing time if you're really diving into that intellectual journey and also trying to stay true to, you know, at least from my world, like progressive values and kind of a, maybe a more of a left-wing origin. Um and I've, I definitely resonate with this feeling of deflation and this feeling of almost despair of like, fuck, like nothing makes sense. But there is this point in uh, the article that you referenced for Grey Pilling when it talks about the when you go past the disappointment phase and you enter into a real f- space of liberation where you live within perennial uncertainty and that becomes incredibly freeing. And that everything that you encounter, whether it's a casual conversation with someone at a bus stop to a newspaper that someone left behind, that that updates 
uh, your understanding of reality and that you're constantly in this process of piecing together uh, a puzzle that you will never solve or that that's the process and that's what's enjoyable. Um, and so I quite liked the, um, yeah, and it speaks to this idea of making complexity and uncertainty sexy and that actually uh, it's changing yes. the status uh, that is present, the status hierarchy that is present within politics, which is that... Um, you know, displaying moral purity to your tribe is, particularly in progressive circles and on the left, is seen as the most high status thing you can do. But if you really look into that, it, it's a betrayal of so much uncertainty and complexity. And actually, the people who are willing to find the strength to go beyond their tribe and to explore that and hold that, that that is, uh, if we can make that something that is can be aspired to, that I think that would have a, a real positive effect on the conversation. Yeah, and what come to, came to mind when you when you were saying that is, like, one thing I, I'd like to say is we mentioned this in the article as well, is we're not claiming that all tribes are, are equal in their perspective. You know, some tribes may be more moral, some tribes may be more accurate or interesting, whatever. But one thing I try to operate in my meetings here in Toronto and in, in, in everyday life is that when I believe something to be true and I'm just defining truth here as a correspondence theory of truth is that you have a sort of model of reality and you think it corresponds to that model corresponds to reality. So when you believe something to be true, have that caveat, I could be wrong, you know, in like that, that little fine print underneath that, the, that truth that you have. And if you have that, then I think you end up just talking in a different way and you communicate in a different way. And, I mentioned this little passage in the article, the philosophical sandbox. We all have operating systems. If you want to look at those, uh, these mimetic tribes, they all have an operating system, something that tells them what is and what should be. Um, but it's, it would be good to have a sandbox. And I'm using that term from software engineering, where in order not to mess with the production environment, uh, they have a sandbox environment where they can kind of do upgrades, test code to see if it works. And then if it works, then they can integrate it in the, the production environment. And I think we need to have a philosophical sandbox so we can look at perspectives on their own term, um, see, see what's truthful, what's right, what's moral, and then we can include it into our operating system. Because I think we have to have an operating system. We have to have something that grounds us in reality and, and makes us get out of bed. But most people don't have that philosophical sandbox where they can play with ideas. And so that's something that I think is is uh, crucially important for us to for us to kind of encourage. And the way I look at it as well, and I'm just kind of getting jazzy now. Um, Ken Wilber's uh, recent book, uh, Trump mm. in the Post Truth World, he um, he criticizes sort of the the what they call the green meme or the the kind of the the postmodern tribes that are existing right now, and he says that they they become sort of pathological. Uh, and if that's true, if we're going to talk as if that's true, then there needs to be sort of a healthy postmodernism mm -hmm. that arises. And if a healthy postmodernism arises, it needs to be able to, I think, take on these perspectives on their own term, be that method actor mm -hmm. of different reality tunnels without, um, you know, telling somebody else what they actually yeah. think. Yeah, I think in many respects, the, the alter ego gatherings in the spaces have been an attempt at that. Um, not just that, but a 
giving people a, uh, somewhat of a space to, yeah, even for a moment, just take on and entertain other opinions and perspectives. Um, and, uh, but almost in a, in a safe space, it doesn't mean that, okay, and, then, and therefore that's now what you think yes. and you will be judged because of that. But it's, um, it's a kind of, uh, it's like you say, it's, it's playing uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a free space before thinking about whether that upgrades, upgrades your own uh, political worldview. Um, and I think that uh, I really love the idea in the article about differentiating between political conversations as kind of spectator debates or sports debates where it is a kind of a, a conflict of wills and ideas and intellects to see which idea wins out um, which is very entertaining and is the subject of most kind of media formats to uh, debates as sense making where two people faithfully enter into a dialogue uh, to simply make sense and I think that that's probably the 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 contribution of um you know the intellectual dark web you know just regardless of their political persuasions is that you, you're seeing an attempt for people who are somewhere on the right somewhere in the center somewhere on the left to really meet each other and just make sense of complexity and within that kind of learning conversational space we we just have a more intelligent conversation and that that more than anything is needed regardless of your political perspective that like we yeah. can yeah it's almost that um uh you know that um that the problem of polarization is if, as far, as far as i can tell the 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 primary problem because it 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 fundamentally prevents us from solving any problem um and until we can really work our way through that uh, which involves us going beyond our usual political positions that then we can work to advance the political positions that we feel you know most correspond to our values and beliefs um, mm-hmm. So, unless you have any other yeah. uh, pressing ideas, I think it's a good place to to leave it at the hour mark. Um, yeah, I'd like to mm-hmm. thank you so much for the conversation and for your insights. Um, there's just so many mimetic ideas uh, in the article uh, in and of itself uh, that it's just a treasure trove of new concepts and ideas that are really enriching. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, I would highly recommend uh, reading uh, the article. Check out Intellectual Explorers Club on Facebook. I think there's a group that you can join. Uh, and equally, uh, we have a Alter Ego's a media channel where we are posting conversations like this. Um, so yeah, thank you very much, Peter. Thank you for having me. Wonderful talk.